0: Hey, it's time for another episode of Certified Forgotten, which is why you're here, which is what you're listening to. I am one half of your Matt hosts, Matt Monagle. I am joined, as always, by my esteemed partner in, I would say, crime, bargain bin searching, I guess, searching through the dregs of horror with me. It's Matt Donato. How you doing, buddy?
1: I don't have corona yet, so I'm doing okay.
0: Oh, God. All right. So, by the time that this episode comes out, because we're sort of staggering the release of these episodes, that'll either be not funny at all, it'll be hilarious, or we'll all be dead. Yep. So, really just so that's dating, good.
1: This, dating this podcast, just really just yep. putting it out there.
0: We're just going to, we're just, we're writing some checks to see if they'll cash when the the time comes. So it'll probably, probably be fine.
1: I guess it's fair to say it's March 15th right now as we record this.
0: It's March 15th. We're all quarantined. Um, So this is a special quarantine episode of Certified Forgotten. And please, if this is still ongoing, don't go out, don't go to bars, don't go to Nashville. You fucking idiots. Stay in your homes. I will bring you food if you need it. Um, For this special quarantine episode... We should probably watch some sort of quarantine movie in the near future. But anyways, for this special quarantine episode of Certified Forgotten, we are bringing in a a special guest. And we're bringing in another Matt because it's not confusing enough on the podcast already. We thought three Mats would really ramp up the confusion factor. So Donato, can you introduce the third Matt, the special Matt that we brought on board?
1: Always. There's no such thing as Too Many Mats, as as we all know, because we are all mats, and we will refer to ourselves as last name moving forward to remove any kind of possible issues with recording later on. But with us today, we have a ex-film critic, we will say, who has become programmer for Brooklyn Horror Film Festival and Tribeca, and... Is just a wealth of knowledge on the Twitter sphere about horror. I am jealous numerous times and get many recommendations, even though we don't always agree. with us today Mister Matt Barone.
2: Well, thank you, uh, Donato and Monagle. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, no, thanks, man. This is exciting. I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad you guys agreed to watch the movie I recommended because it's uh,
0: it's it's definitely something something pretty unique.
1: Oh, it is unique. We will get there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you're tuning into this, this is the Little Deaths episode. That is the movie that, that Barone brought. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But as we usually do, the first thing we want to do is get to know our guest and give you guys an opportunity to learn um, how some of the people that come into our orbit, uh, journalists, programmers, things like that, got their start with the horror genre. So, Barone, I'm excited because I've never never—I've talked to you about lots of festival stuff in the past. I have a lot of conversations with you about you know horror now. But horror then where did this all begin for you what were the, like the first horror movies you watched was it a family member the mom or a dad who introduced you to the genre what was the start for you yeah it was it was my dad he uh
2: when i was growing up he was the kind of he was the kind of the kind of father or parent that would just sort of like not force his stuff onto you because i loved everything he showed me but he was very excited about he loved Monty Python and faulty towers and stuff like that so when i was 5 or 6 you know we'd spend hours watching Every episode of Monty Python, and I guess he figured I was mature enough for a six-year-old to get that humor. Um, But then, one of the things he put me on to was Abbott and Costello. He's a huge fan of Abbott. He was a huge fan of Abbott and Costello. Um, A because he loved their, you know, obviously their their stuff, but B. Uh, they're from Patterson, New Jersey, and I'm actually from New Jersey. The town I'm from, Fairlawn, is right next to Patterson. So I guess it was like a sort of a local town hero kind of thing that my dad appreciated about them. Um, so he would show me all the episodes of and Costello was a kid, and that eventually led to Ab and Costello meet Frankenstein when I was like six or seven. I was young. Um, and just I, I guess it was sort of programmed in me to sort of eventually love horror once I, once I met it. Um, I just started obsessing over that movie. I'd want to rewatch it all the time and watch like all the scenes where the kind of the climax, you know, when Frankenstein is chasing them around the, the, the castle and all that. I just, it was kind of an immediate love, and then from there, I asked him, you know, is there any other? I guess I, you know, from what I remember, I was asking him, like, show me other movies like this, and he showed me, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula, all the Universal monster stuff, uh, Invisible Man, Creature from the Black Lagoon, the Mummy. And so I became obsessive rewatching all those movies on VHS that, um, we either had VHS copies or we would dub VHSs and I or tape them off TV and rewatch them with bad quality um, to the point where I became obsessive with the Wolfman, And I started, um, anything that had, I'd go to the video store with my mom and anything that had a werewolf in it. So I would watch, like, I was a teenage werewolf of Michael Landon over and over again, uh, werewolf of London with Henry Hull. You know, I was obsessive with that. So it just became a thing where I just kind of went down rabbit hole after rabbit hole and, uh, fell in love with it. I became a Scooby-Doo fan at that time. Cause that was, I guess, kind of the easiest sort of uh, transition for me as a kid that, that age that my, my parents my mom would sort of introduce me to but the real game changer after that was I guess a year or so later at my aunt's house my aunt and uncle had a VHS copy of Night of Living Dead that was like always sitting on the coffee table for some reason um and it just always caught my eye whenever I'd go over there and I my but that was one that my parents were like not cool with me watching because I guess they realized that it was not you know, that it was kind of on another level, uh, in terms of you know, sort of the extreme and sort of visceral nature of it. But some one day I just went down there, and we were over at my aunt's house, and I started, I put in the VHS player and I watched it kind of uh, secretly, and it blew my mind. And that was that was the official kind of like, okay, yeah, like I was already clearly a horror fan, but Night of Living Dead is the one that kind of cemented it. You know, I was so young that I don't think I like fully grasped what Romero was doing, you know, because you know, I was seven or eight, so like you know, I, I'm not gonna say I was like some advanced seven or eight year old who got it, but I definitely clicked into something going on in that movie that was deeper than the universal stuff. You know, I, I there was a kind of sort of a visceral kind of uh, extreme reaction I had to that where it just scared the shit out of me in ways those other movies didn't. And it, I guess somehow I, I picked up on some kind of transgressive thing going on in it because from there I just became completely obsessed. And yeah, so that's sort of, so it was, it was Adam Costello kind of slowly transitioning into me finding night of the living dead. And then from there, the rate it was off to the races.
1: I would just like so- to say uh, before Monogle jumps in here, he is outnumbered because obviously we we're both Jersey boys. And <laughs> I literally grew up, you know, I think maybe 10 minutes from Patterson. My dad was a cop and he uh, he was in Clifton, which is a town over. And he often went into mm-hmm. Patterson. So it's just so funny to hear that. You know, we ha- had that same local happening on and I had completely the different experience of coming into horror. I did not have any of that. <laughs> and it was just like I had to have it in Costello right there. And that, that would have been such an easy in for me. And my parents could not have been farther from, you know, the same kind of parents that you had.
2: Yeah. Well, speaking of Jersey too, uh, so when the Night of Living Dead remake came out, which I believe was 1990 or or something, I think it was 90, uh, my dad took me to Fairleigh Dickinson University, had a horror convention, which is in our area as well. Um, And that I went there and just was in awe of everything and John Russo, the guy who wrote who helped Romero make the original Night of the Living Dead and worked on the remake. And he's written novels that are sort of from the Night of the Living Dead universe. He was there signing um, autographs and stuff. My dad bought me the poster, which was that the remakes uh, one sheet, which is like the zombies walking up the hill towards the house. That um, He bought me that and then John Russo signed it. And so from age eight or nine through about junior year of college, uh, that poster stood on my wall, my, my bedroom and just kind of eventually kind of you know, had cracks and started falling apart and i just would refuse to take it down but the sort of fairly dickinson university jersey connection seemed like something you might you might and
1: my dad got his upper graduate degree from fairly dickinson <laughs> university so the ties are actually much more connected than you think we we are we are jersey boys through and through and honestly on a level i didn't even
0: know <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's cool. do you guys want me to do you want me to turn off the microphone the two of you can just yeah you, you can get the fuck out <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I was joking (laughs) earlier that after this podcast, there's no way I'm not going to say horror for the rest of it. Horror Uh, horror movies. movies.
1: (laughs) Actually, uh, not to derail this really quickly, but one of my friends listened to one of our first episodes and she said, I forget who, I think it was, um, it was, uh, who's our first episode? One of like Ashley, right? It was Ashley. Yeah. Yeah. And the way I said horror, you said horror and she said horror -er, or however she pronounced it. My friend was just like, I don't understand what you're all saying because it's a different word. I just kept laughing. I'm like, I didn't realize until that point. But yeah,
0: you guys. I mean, it's my Alaskan accent. It still pops every now and then. Um, bro, I want to. I want to ask about video stores because one of the things that that we often talk about, um, Donato and I have talked about with our guests, is that video store experience and how, for a lot of horror fans, the kind of like the blind grabs is a big part of that process. You know, you learn. What you like, not through it was a little too early for you to just go online and be like top 50 vampire movies or whatever. So we just kind of like go by the box cover. So, what were some of your like go to indicators when you were in the video store? What were things that would make you grab something off a shelf?
2: Uh, at first it was well, there was a place called Dollar Video that was in my town, Farallon, that I was like that was my sanctuary basically. Um, at first it was because I guess Night Living Dead being so instrumental and so big for me that I, I naturally became a zombie fan. So, the first thing that it was was I would. Um, look for zombie movies at the video store, which naturally led me to finding all these old Italian movies, like everything from Fulci zombie to hell of the living dead, to city of the living dead, to all the kind of the, then it led to the beyond. So at first it was just a general kind of zombie movie interest. Uh, burial ground was a big one that I just randomly pulled out of the shelf one day and brought it home as like a 12 year old. And I get to a scene where this guy who's about 47 years old playing a 10 year old eats his mom's breast. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, like, so it was just, it was, it was, so at first it was just a general kind of zombie thing. And then from there, you know, I remember night of the creeps poster was always hanging in the back of the video store. So I went to that. So then it became, which I'm sure everybody else can relate to just the kind of box cover thing of like, you know, what's the craziest box covers I can find and, and going from there. But the cool thing about all that is as I got older and, you know, I started becoming more sort of uh you know, versed in the importance of certain movies and certain filmmakers, filmographies and everything, I started realizing that, like, like when I got to the Fulci sort of conversation or the Argento conversation, I'd realized that I'd seen a lot of these movies just by generally being a 13-year-old who went to dollar video and thought that the zombie, the Fulci zombie cover with, like, the worms coming out of that sort of skeletal zombie on the cover would look cool. Little did I know that I was, like, preparing myself 20 years later to be sort of well-versed in Italian horror, you know? So it was kind of like a... I don't know if it's like an osmosis thing or something where a lot of these things just sort of happened that I gravitated towards movies that were were seminal or important in the genre just by being at the video store and finding a cool box cover or they happened to have zombies in them. Uh, so yeah, so it was a mixture of just the general box cover thing, but also generally like, yeah, I love zombie movies as a kid and there was thank, fortunately there was about 15 or 20, just everything ranging from the good stuff like a Fulci zombie to like, you know, some random obscure thing that i can't even remember the title of that was terrible that i forgot about you know it was that was kind of my way in and then from there uh you know i i i got into sort of haunted house stuff because i watched the robert wise's the haunting as a kid because i fortunately having my dad be a guy who loved sort of the old school black and white horror he was the guy who would be like oh you should see this or so carnival of souls i watch as a young kid and that's one of my favorite mm-hmm. movies of all time but like he introduced me to that and then the haunting was one so then i I guess I just watched The Haunting one day. So from there, I'd go to the video store. I'm like, okay, I love The Haunting. Let me try and find something that has, like, you know, sort of a haunted house vibe, which led to me finding house with, like, the, the hand ringing the doorbell, you know? So it basically – I would sort of go to the video store with a kind of mission more so than just kind of a general browsing. I'd, I'd say, okay, I'm in the mood to watch this kind of movie or that kind of movie, and whatever fit the bill, I would rent it. And so I guess in a way, even as a young kid, I was, like, sort of – uh curator like a personal curator you know i had that kind of instinct yeah, yeah. in me at that age to where i was naturally like okay well if i like this and i may like these other things that look similar which i guess sort of led me to having a programmer mentality even as a you know 10 or 11 year old so i guess it all kind of makes sense in like a full circle way
0: yeah i'd love to see the uh, the festivals you would have programmed as a 12 year old you're basically <laughs> like all right this is all the box covers i like this is the program <laughs> well not
1: even that though I, I will admit that like I kind of miss your writing a little bit and not selfishly <laughs> um, because like reading it I think you and Monagle have the same kind of mindset where you approach things from a much more academic sense and I always felt like when I was reading your writing I was learning something uh, I forget whether it was the dissolve or complex uh, you were writing for at some time but it correct me if I'm wrong I think you wrote a piece about basically like racial representation and horror and uh, specifically like from an African-American sense one time
2: Yes, yeah. So uh, that was for the that was my first piece for the dissolve. Yeah. It was right when um, Spike Lee's Ganja and Hess remake came out, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, and I just was like looking around, realizing that like there's really no black horror filmmakers, and yeah. So that and I I was. The thing about that that always bugs me is that I was chasing a Jordan Peele quote because Get Out had just been announced. So I was like, oh, he'd be cool to talk to. And like Comedy Central was kind of dragging their feet. And then the piece got published and it got really good reception. And then like two weeks later, Comedy Central was like, oh, Jordan Peele wants to talk. And I'm like, fuck, it would have been great if you would have told me this two months ago. But um, yeah, that was that was a piece for the Dissolve I wrote. Yeah, I I miss writing. You know, there's a whole kind of reason for why I kind of stepped away from writing that I'm sure we'll get into. But um, lately, I've had kind of an itch to like get back into it and i'm working on something for fangoria now actually which i'm excited about so that'll be kind awesome. of like a good yeah that'll be a good sort of gateway back into it and uh you know we'll see because my background too is which i'm sure we'll get into in a second but like i come from a magazine publishing background for like a long time prior to even working at complex so i sort of came up in this era where like i was getting paid a buck fifty a word and two dollars a word so like I, I i came up in the magazine publishing game when it was thriving prior to the 2009 sort of economy crash um so a lot of it too is me kind of mentally adjusting to like what the current climate is you know so it's a lot of um like i almost feel like an outsider at times trying to like break figure out how to kind of work my way back into writing because it's such a different industry now and it's such a different beast that i'm like so unfamiliar with so it's a lot of um sort of following all you guys on twitter and kind of seeing what you guys talk about listening to your podcast and anya of course uh you know uh, my girlfriend anya who you guys know as well you know she talking to her about how the industry is and stuff it's kind of sort of schooling me on it a lot and um so i'm realizing that like i can figure it out and i can get back into it and i also just miss writing so i want to try to make 2020 a year where i sort of slowly kind of ease my way back into it i think
1: heck yeah and i mean i I guess for me that's an interesting question because i only know this period i only know where the industry currently is and that's how i've kind of come up and just like you're saying yeah like i feel like i figured out a little bit of a way to navigate it but i'd be curious to act you sorry ask you kind of What's the biggest thing you see that's changed? Uh, I mean, besides monetarily, because obviously we know the dollar50 a word and two dollars a word uh, does not exist anymore if you even get paid. Uh, but I mean going from a content standpoint, even you know, what are the biggest changes that you've kind of seen? because I'm curious.
2: Yeah. Uh. So, well, I sort of. So, basically, I I went to school for journalism. I went to St. John's and Queens. And so, when I got out of there, I started working for this magazine called King, which was kind of like Hip Hop Maxim. Um. And I was working there for five years as an editor, full time writer. And then I freelanced for like Vibe magazine, a Double XL. Basically, I was a hip hop uh, writer. Like, uh, cause growing up, just as much as I love horror, I was a big rap music, hip hop fan, like underground hip hop and stuff, my whole life. So I first started covering that. Was my way in, um but so the difference and in, in the thing I miss about that world is um because this was also prior. I mean, the internet obviously always existed, but this was before Twitter to a degree, and this was before like the onslaught of blogs and and all that kind of thing, where con- where you had to have content every day, and it felt like you know you sort of were just pumping out pieces left and right and everything. But back in the magazine days, I'd have three months to work on a piece, you know, and it would come out. It would be edited in five or six rounds of edits through like, you know, people who went to school for editing and it was like, you know, their degree was editor. And so you'd have like back and forth, five or six email chains back and forth of line edits for like to like the littlest degree of we need to change this one sentence and you need to, you know, like sort of editing that I know still exists, but it doesn't feel like it's as um, prominent as it was in that time. I feel, you know, I, I guess the nature of internet at times, it feels like things are edited, but they're not, um, they don't, editors online don't have the luxury of, of spending two months on a piece because they need to get something out because the film come, came out last week and there's a kind of timeliness through the internet that doesn't, um, that didn't really exist in my publishing days. So I guess the biggest difference that, um, you know, I, I would do profiles on rappers and artists. There were times I'd spend five days with a rapper in LA, you know, so I'd have like a full time to really kind of vibe with them and sort of get to know them. So when I would write a profile, you'd be able to actually kind of like get a sense of who they are. You know, so that kind of stuff I feel like isn't as um, I'm sure it still exists to a degree with like, you know, like New York Times and these and the bigger outlets. But I feel like it's harder to get that sort of access um, now in the kind of the higher sort of volume of website writing and everything. Um, yeah, it just it felt it felt more kind of um, it just felt everything moves slower, you know, um, and things like movies specifically. Well, for me, it was different with album release dates. Right. Because I look at how the music industry is now. You Somebody would tell me that the new, whatever, Ghostface album is coming out seven months from now, and it would stick to that release date, so my magazine would have seven months to plan coverage, whereas now, Donald Glover released an album last night, apparently, I, you know, so it's like, there's no rules anymore in the sense of, like, planning things, everything now is so much more reactive, whereas when I was coming up in the magazine world, it was much more, like, you had time to really... um plan coverage and sort of plan angles and sort of, you know, spend time with the artist beforehand. And like you get an album, you'd have like a few weeks to sit with the album and review it as opposed to hearing it once and cranking out a review for like timeliness sake. And so, yeah, if that all makes sense, I think it's just, it's just more of a sense of things feel much more reactive and, and quicker turnarounds now by necessity. Whereas, you know, when I was first doing the magazine thing, it, it was less of that. And, but I, you know, when I worked at complex for four years, that was the big website boom. And I was only on the website there. And that's when I started getting the sense of like, okay, yeah, I got to turn pieces around quicker and I got to write a lot of lists. Complex was a huge list factory basically. So I was cranking out the hundred best Netflix movies. I had to write that in two days, you know, like stuff like that. Uh, I was up to 4am every night writing 50 movie lists and stuff. So it was like, you know, I slowly kind of got into that space, but I feel like by the time I stopped writing, um, it was still a lot. I kind of left the writing game when the pivot, to video thing started happening. So um, my experience kind of comes pre that so everything that's happened since then, I haven't really been sort of firsthand with, I guess.
1: Yeah. And I think that's fine because none of us understand what to do at this point <laughs> because we all know how the pivot to video worked. It
0: didn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a strange time to be a writer. Um, you know, and I think I I will be interested to see because I, I remember reading a lot of your stuff in particular, the piece that, that Matt referenced and I, I think you're an excellent film critic. I'm sorry that the criticism world lost you, but the programming world seems to be better off for it. But um it will i think you know there are people that that i and i would include myself maybe as one of them a little bit more time for us is a little bit better you know it's it's more valuable to maybe dive into something a bit deeper than than being reactionary i'm terrible at writing lists like because i feel like i have to watch every movie on the list and then i have to watch the movies that i won't put on the list to make sure that i feel good about it so i like i don't write lists at all um I just don't have the mindset for it. But yeah, like, you know, there there's probably a lot of different ways, including a little bit of like audio scripted or video scripted content that you could, you could fuck around with as you're finding your footing in there. So um, it'll be exciting to see where you land as a writer and how you decide to pick up what you've learned um, since you stopped writing full time and bring that back into the game.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And there's also an element, too, of like that kind of leads into how I got into programming where... Um, not to, like, you know, get super heavy on this episode or whatever, but uh, so beginning of 2016, I was uh, working for Tribeca Film Festival, it had a website that they wanted to uh, basically it was this kind of experiment in 2015. They wanted to give the website a year round editorial voice and presence. So they brought me in because um, I had been covering Tribeca and I became friendly with a lot of people that work there. They brought me in to kind of s- help steer that ship. Um, so I started doing that, but then the beginning of 2016, my dad got uh, sick. He got diagnosed with ALS. So there was like a whole thing of, and that was a, led to like a 10 month sort of waking nightmare uh, until he passed away in that October. So there was a combination of that plus like the Tribeca website experiment sort of cratered in the fall, follow- the May of 2016, where like Tribeca let go of half the company, and it was called the Red Wedding basically there. Um, and my whole department was let go. So I kind of went through this like existential moment of like, well, okay maybe the writing world is just telling me I shouldn't be doing this. And also because of my dad's thing, it was like a kind of like you only live once mentality of like, okay, I've loved film festivals. You know, I've been covering them for years, a complex, I would cover South by every year and TIFF and Tribeca and fantastic fest. And I was like, I just fell in love with that environment. So I was like, okay, you only live once. So, you know, my dad getting sick in that way kind of jarred me and and rattled me to like, make me think that if I'm ever going to give this festival thing a chance, like, let me really kind of jump full steam into it and see if I can make it work. Um, And, for a long time the last few years it's been a lot of like sort of reticence to write because of that you know like i felt like that was a part of me that like left when the whole thing with my dad happened so i i got sort of timid and like thinking that you know maybe uh, i stopped writing for a reason maybe i i had this whole mentality of like i didn't i never published a book so i kind of failed at writing you know that was my oh, mentality gosh. when my dad got sick cuz like i always wanted my dad to like be, he was he was proud of me but it was a thing where like i felt like him passing away having never seen me do something big it felt like a crushing blow to me like to my ego my my kind of confidence so it took a long time for me to realize that like that was just me kind of being too hard on myself and that you know I went to school for writing I did it for so long and I feel like I'm pretty good at it that it's not fair to like myself to just kind of like completely shut that part of me down you know so now that the festival thing is, I'm in sort of a groove with that, you know, and and Brooklyn Horror is doing really well. We keep getting bigger, and Tribeca, I feel like I have a good foot in there, and it feels like now is the time I can say, you know what, man, I, my background is actually writing. I went to school for it, you know, I did it for such a long time. Like it's stupid of me not to like do it, and yeah, so it's it's it, this year feels like, you know, kind of a perfect time for me to sort of get over myself a little bit and and start writing again, you know. Yeah, totally.
0: I will I will add to that, um, and I'm not entirely sure that this is a good thing, but it is a thing. I think since you have probably stepped away as a full-time writer, the the lines between editorial, festival work, and production, distribution have really blurred in a way that doesn't always do the industry any favors. But there it is. So those pivots, those like kind of like, you know, walls we used to have in place between those parts of the industry have broken down a little bit with some of the players that are in that space now. And some of the communities that are formed around it. So what that means for you, I think, is an opportunity for you to blur those lines and not feel like you're, you know, you're crossing somebody or stepping on anybody's toes because the other organizations are doing that as well. And whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. I have strong feelings on it and I can talk myself into either. But, you know, the people that used to just do festivals or used to just distribute or used to just write are now kind of the same people a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're, we see the same people at every festival we go to, and, and this whole thing, you know, journalists uh, writing for a website, and all of a sudden that website makes a distribution arm, and all of a sudden yeah. the journalists are the ones picking up the film. Yeah, no, I I think writing, as much as there is a lot to say about the state of the industry, and there's a lot to say that we already have about what we do, and, you know, even on other podcast episodes, we kind of talk about the fact that, like, this is a very thankless gig, you know, doing this writing world and especially film journalism and entertainment journalism we do it for us and we do it because it's what makes us happy and i think that is the biggest propulsion that's kind of put me forward too because you know even with my dad he doesn't understand what i do like, like he has no idea uh, what writing about film is and stuff like that and it's still kind of that thing of like yeah but like you still have your day job right and i'm like y- yes i'm not gonna get rid of my day job don't worry So like I totally understand that aspect that you were talking about, Matt. Where it's like I just want that one big thing to be like, see, this isn't just me sitting on a computer doing nothing like you think I'm doing.
0: Yeah. No, you also you're drinking White Claw too. That's part of it. Well, yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm wearing a tank top, drinking White Claw at the same time. So I mean, it's a whole image that goes with it. But yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's yeah it's it's interesting too because you know I think that um you were saying how it's a thankless gig and it it definitely is and, and it always was but I think one thing I've sort of the last few years has been processing is the, the sort of how um, festival sort of working at festivals and programming by nature. You're not, it's never about you. You know what I mean? Like it's all about like what your films you put out. So like, there's no real people, people know who programmers are. And you, and you know, the people who really cover festivals know who, program sundance midnight and you know peter at tiff and all that like you sort of know who the people are at the festivals but it's not the same thing where there's not really like a byline attached to it and i went through a lot of kind of adjusting to that you know from having spent so long working and publishing and writing and editing and stuff to where like my name was out there more and you know like in twitter engagement was easier to do because like i was sort of pushing my own content so i went through a kind of a phase the last couple of years with, with uh, the festival side of it where it's like settling into kind of an, an-, an- anonymity a little bit you know um mm-hmm. which which i think actually suits me well because i'm sort of an introvert and kind of a quiet guy by nature um but there's that adjustment of like understanding that uh you know the festival world like you can you can program the hell out of a, of a festival but like people aren't going to necessarily like praise you directly. It's going to be more about the festival and that's the way it should be. But so that was kind of a mental adjustment for me for a couple years too, was to kind of understand that like, you know, I, if people aren't like telling me that the festival is that like, you know, like if Broken Horror is being praised, it does. And the fact that they're not coming directly to me with it isn't a bad thing. But at, at first it was always like, well, maybe I'm not cut out for this festival thing. Cause like people don't seem to really um, see what I'm doing, but then it took a while for me to understand that that's because they're not really supposed to see it as me it's it's the festival program is what stands forth you know there's no byline or anything so it's it's, it's been it's sort of sort of transitioning from writer to, to to programmer has been kind of an interesting sort of uh thing for the last couple of years that i finally like last year i feel like was the first year i really kind of understood everything and really accepted it and was like cool with it and and knew how to navigate it to where like that's why i think this year is the year i can write again because like i feel very comfortable in everything now whereas the previous two years there was a lot of kind of like trying to figure out where my place was and everything, you know, because now that I wasn't tweeting as much, you know, I, I would wonder if like I still had a kind of standing in the sort of horror Twitter world because I wasn't as out there on Twitter anymore because I wasn't pushing out my pieces. And, you know, it was, just, there was a lot of that kind of going on that I feel like I've sort of plateaued at now in a good way to where like, I can sort of just kind of do what I want to do and have fun with it and, and not sort of psychoanalyze myself so much anymore because I'm kind of a head case, I guess. But
1: <laughs> I think we all are because you're echoing a lot of the same thoughts. Don't don't worry on that. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, we're we're going to um, rebrand this. So this episode is officially Matt Barone's return to film criticism in 2020. <laughs> That's what we're offering right now. So um, we're going to step away for just a second. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the movie that Matt has brought for us, which is called Little Deaths. And we're gonna he's gonna take out that programmer head, he's gonna put on his phone for the gonna be great. All right. We are back and we are ready to talk about Little Deaths. So Little Deaths is a 2011 film. Um, it's an anthology film, but it's a, it's an interesting anthology film in that it doesn't really have a wraparound device. There are actually three sections. One that focuses um, on a rich couple that has an interesting predilection for uh, helping the poor. We'll put it that way. There's a middle section, which has a bit more to deal with Cronenbergian body horror. And there's a late section that has to deal with a relationship and what the two members of that relationship, how they find sort of their sexual kinks. And the title of course, Little Death, (le Petite Mort, is the French phrase for orgasm. So everything here is incredibly tied to sexuality. It's impre- and very tied to sexual appetites. And while there isn't sort of a structural narrative through line, um, if you are interested in the intersection of horror, body horror, and sexuality, you're going to find a lot to talk about with Little Deaths. So. Let's kind of, let's start with the selection process. Um, I keep saying Matt Barone, you brought this one to the table for us. You reached out to Matt and said, Oh, and you actually switched to this cause you had another title you were thinking about earlier. And you said, no, I want to do this one instead. What made this the, the movie you want to talk about on the show? Uh,
2: I think it's great. And I think it, um it came. So it was, like you said, it was released in 2011 uh, and then, you know, VHS, the first VHS came out. I believe that was like 2013 or 2012 or something like that. I got to look that up. But, um, So this sort of predated the kind of anthology resurgence that became a thing with, you know, VHS movies and ABCs of death and they led to ghost stories and, you know, various other ones that came out around that time. But this this happened before those. And I feel like it sort of got gets lost within that and it kind of gets buried within that. The fact that it only had five reviews on Rotten Tomatoes kind of blew my mind because I think it's so like interesting and unique and um, and just generally good that it just felt like it would be a movie that the horror sort of the horror world would, would appreciate or would kind of embrace more than they have. And I think it's just the general sort of, like, lack of of awareness. Like, I've talked to people at festivals I go to that don't know it exists. Uh, the people I do Brooklyn Horror didn't know about it a couple of years ago until I told them about it. You know, like, it just seems like a movie that kind of got sort of lost within its own release. Um, it didn't really do big festivals when it came out. I think it premiered at, like, Rotterdam, and then it did some sort of smaller... I think Fright Fest was probably its biggest one. But it's just, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's a movie that I think is so interesting and so unique i think the third segment is in my opinion if you look at like modern horror anthologies we put like the five best together and made like the ultimate 2010s horror anthology i think the third segment is in that five crop i think it's like amazing um so i think it has a segment alone that is worth talking about by itself and yeah i mean i grew up on amicus i grew up on all the horror anthologies and and they generally kind of always do the same thing. I, I love the fact that this doesn't do the same thing. It, it takes a kind of very specific, you know, like you were talking about the sexual, the sexuality kind of cross section that um, I'd never seen done before. I think it's kind of problematic in ways I'm sure we'll get into eventually, but I think it, um it's just, yeah, it's just a really unique anthology that I feel like it got kind of lost. It, it came out maybe a year or two too early for its own good. If it had come out after VHS, I feel like it would be one people talk about more because they would have um put it in all these conversations of like that kind of resurgence. But um, I just think it's really unique, and, and it goes for sort of a level of cruelty that um, not a lot of films embrace fully, and I think there's something to be said for a film that just really kind of leans into what it's trying to do 100% and doesn't care about what people's reactions are going to be to it.
1: Yeah, and I, I do want to point out that it does only have five reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and all five are fresh, So and they are from friends of the circuit that we have seen over and over again. I mean, Heather Wixton, Todd Gilchrist, uh, Weinberg reviewed it, and... <laughs> I want to read Jordan Hoffman's quote on, or sorry, a little blurb snippet on Rotten Tomatoes, just to really accentuate how much sexuality plays into this film. Semen is the glue that binds the three shorts in Little Deaths. That's all he put on Rotten Tomatoes, and that is
0: very true. <laughs> that's good. I mean, he probably selected that himself, too. So <laughs> that's a good quote. I want to um, float this to you before we talk about these films in particular. So Little Deaths is three segments. Sean Hogan directed, wrote and directed House and Home, which is the first segment. Andrew Parkinson wrote and directed Mutant Tool, great name, which is the second segment. And then the third segment, the one that Barone was talking about, um, Simon Rumley, its segment is called Bitch. So the three of those kind of are, of course, what Little Death is comprised of. There is no interlocking or, or narrative that, that brings the three of them together. I want to ask you guys, how do you feel about horror anthology films in particular? Um, what is you know? What do you think about this to you is it especially where we're sitting with the benefit of hindsight in 2020 is this something that has sort of helped solve some of the industry problems about like how do you get a you know how do you go from a short to a feature um how do you work on some ideas that maybe aren't long enough for a feature film are, are they offering solutions to those things for filmmakers are they super engaging for audiences or were they sort of like a specific spike at a specific point in time for the industry And we're probably going to move away from them. Where do you sit with them?
1: So I'm going to go first because I think I have a love-hate relationship with anthology horror. I love it because I'm drawn to the fact that, number one, you get variety. I really enjoy sitting down for a quote-unquote feature, but getting short stories that can have very different styles, very different approaches, all the themes even. you know They don't even have to be thematically tied. And it gives the filmmakers this... Kind of freedom where I know a feature film is longer and it gives them their own voice for the entirety. But in a short, when you get something like uh, XX, the all female anthology, and that all of a sudden becomes this driving force behind all the female narratives in the film, or you get Field Guide to Evil, which is about uh, mythical horrors and folklore horrors. You just go down the list. I mean, ABCs of Death, I know they're not all perfect and there's a lot to choose from there, but I have so much fun running through this Rolodex of 26 different filmmakers bringing out these ideas out of letters. And it's this challenge presented to filmmakers. Um, A a Christmas horror story. I'm a Christmas horror fan, and you've just given me four little snippets with a William Shatner wraparound, all Christmas horror themed. And to me, that's a gift. But the hate comes in because these are also so easy to make. I mean, up there with found footage, I think uh, it's easy to tell someone to make an anthology horror film because it's just filmmakers doing shorts. And that doesn't always translate to quality. That doesn't always translate to like, oh, we have to give them a big budget and things of that nature because a lot of the times they don't. And that's where it gets dicey. And you have to separate the very successful anthology films that we have gotten, um, you know, the VHSs and stuff like that. You know, VHS 3, there's some work in there that, you know, looks feature length quality. And that's not to say an anthology can't be that quality all the time, but it's not. And again, that's that's where my hate comes in. And I've had to hate watch quite a few horror anthologies that I get through and just go like, all right, so you just base value went out in the backyard and put a bunch of little uh, micro budget shorts together and called it a horror anthology. So I, I think this is a viable solution to a lot of indie horror, quote-unquote, problems. And I don't think it's going away anytime soon. But I think there has to be a responsibility behind an anthology horror film that you're not just, you know, going outside and doing something with your friends. Like, you have to have a meaning here. You, it's still a feature film, and you have to treat it as such.
2: Yeah, I, I can respond. To, yeah, so I agree with you in the sense that it... um. It solves a problem and I think one problem that it solves uh from a filmmaker standpoint is a lot of times these get made out of frustration that they can't get features made you know so like um southbound for instance basically existed because all those filmmakers were having trouble getting things off the ground and they're like you know i'm gonna fuck this we're just gonna get together and making an, it you know we're just gonna you know, you go make something for X amount of money, I'll make this for X amount of money and we'll put it together, you know, so it, it, it's, it's a sort of a liberating kind of thing for filmmakers in that regard that it solves the problem of how difficult it is to get a feature made. So, you know, that's where short films come from in general and sort of the anthology gives them the chance to kind of do something they would do in a short, but it's also more packageable because... You know, I mean, I, I one thing I love about programming is programming short film blocks. I love going to festivals and I seek out short film programs just because the kind of the craziest, most ambitious stuff tends to live in those programs. But a lot of people that go to festivals don't do that, you know. So I think short films, you know, they they often struggle to find homes and to find people that see them. And and you know, whereas if you kind of package them into an anthology, it it uh it kind of makes it immediately sellable or, you know, immediately kind of people see like, Oh, wait a second. I like anthologies. So let me go see this. So it it solves certain problems in the sense of it gives filmmakers a chance to actually create something and make something and, and exercise that itch that they can't get done because they're waiting five years to get this financing for the feature they've been trying to make forever. Um, So that's a good thing. I think, and because of that, I think they're always going to exist. They may not be, you know, they may not be like another VHS boom of them in the next year or two, but I think, there's a whole other conversation about the sort of TV anthology process going on. That's kind of sort of, you know, take, that's kind of taking that baton a little bit, but um, yeah, so I think they're always going to exist and they're always going to be available as a resource for these people that have trouble getting the big thing they want to get made. So they, they can just make something for a couple for a month or so and get it and in, get it into a festival and get it released and kind of get their product out there and keep their names relevant and, and keep their names kind of in the faces of everybody. Um, but I also, one thing you said, Matt, that was interesting is you said that like you think they're almost kind of easy to make in a way. Um, I, I think when 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 that's the case, it's like the bad ones, you know, which which everything there's always a bad example of everything. But I think what I love about them and I've always loved about them growing up, I, I also love reading short stories and short fiction. But like so, for instance, my favorite sort of horror anthology short of the last X amount of years, I think it's a masterpiece is Father's Day and holidays. And I think that um that's not easy to make at all. I mean, you basically have 10, 11 minutes to tell this story that can work on multiple levels of creeping you out of, of giving you a character of giving you a backstory of a character of, of doing all these things that you only have the luxury of 10 or 11 minutes to do. So I think when these, and that's why I love this bitch segment in, um, little deaths is sort of connected to this idea. But I think if the ones that do it well and that do it, that do it properly, those are hard to make because the same reasons why they could also be easy to make because these people that take it seriously and they really kind of want to give you a character arc and the and kind of an emotional payoff, um, I, somebody, you know, if you were to sit down and write a script and try to, you know, if somebody gave you 12 pages, you only have 12 pages to give me a full, a full character arc and a kind of, and make me, and make me feel it in the end of the segment. That's really hard to do, you know, because you, you have to figure out how to kind of not just bury people with exposition because you only have 10 minutes to do it. So you really can't do that. You got to find a way to kind of do sort of subtle exposition within sort of pictures you know like framed family pictures in the background or whatever or sort of coded dialogue like in the father's day segment of just kind of listening to her listening to this analog recording of her dad talking to her you get a sense of what their relationship was like just by the kind of two-person dynamic of them talking so i think that the ones that do it well and the anthologies that stick around and the segments that really kind of linger with us are the ones that kind of found a way to make what i think could be really hard to do they kind of nail it you know so i think the films that, that make you think they're easy to make are the ones that are sort of cynically made or that the ones that don't really... Maybe the people just made them just to make it just kind of throw a kind of goofy sort of gore effect. And their, their whole idea for the segment was, oh, this would be cool if we ended with a shot of like whatever, you know, somebody being split in two. So the whole segment exists because of that. Those are the yeah. ones that you watch once, you forget about them and you go about your day and go you know eat dinner or whatever. But the ones like Father's Day or bitch to me in this in Little deaths, the ones that have a lot more going on than just that kind of sort of like visceral sort of delivery system I think um or why I love anthologies and why I love watching them is because I'm hoping that everyone I watch is going to give me at least two or three segments that that show me how the filmmaker really kind of took it seriously and really kind of put his all into making this like a complete sort of uh, complete experience
1: yeah and I mean I definitely what you just said is exactly what I meant so apologies if that wasn't clear yeah I mean the best anthologies do take it serious and those are the ones that we do remember a hundred percent and you know me saying easy was definitely in reference to thinking of something like i watched a movie called holiday hell which was basically like four student films that they didn't even explain that it was not just christmas like the entire poster is just christmas horror themed but then they don't explain that there's also a valentine's day one thrown in so you get a christmas a valentine's day then it goes to christmas then it does another holiday but in the same sense they were made for basically zero budget they all looked like just what you said they either had one gore effect or they had one pivotal moment that they tried to like bolster a short around and again i don't need to repeat it because you said it exactly what i meant so i didn't mean to say it was yeah definitely not easy to make an anthology film because it is hard to make them right but it's easy to make them cynically and poorly in that nature and mentioning southbound is a great example of how to do said thing right because you think about the wraparound and how everything ties in and it's the long highway that these characters keep finding themselves on and the intertwining that is how you do an anthology film that is how you get into this
0: yeah and i i'm i want to follow up on that and, and then we can start talking about little deaths in particular too but you know, I think the first horror film or really the first festival I ever got accredited at was uh, Tribeca when I lived in New York City. And that was back before they had Matt Barone as one of their programmers. So their midnight program in particular was it could be a little hit and miss, but they sort of made up for that by having a really good um, a really good short program. Tribeca's Midnighter short program has always been really fun. Um, dating back to, you know, as far back as I've been going for seven or eight years now when I was looking at the titles. And between that and Fantastic Fest and a couple other festivals, like I I love short films. Like I think there's so much fun and I'll take a good midnight or shorts program over like any soon to be released on Netflix movie that plays at a festival. But, you know, I think part of that for me is what makes those things fun is that there's a curative element to it, a, a curative element to it. You are pulling together from tons and tons of different submissions, kind of what you think the best are. And I wish there was a way to do like what is it—the Scribner's Best American Literature, Best Short Stories—the thing, the anthologies that come out every year. Like a lot of times, the anthologies that that happen are designed to be around a, a central theme, or designed filmmakers who choose other filmmakers that they know share sort of their aesthetic, as opposed to just kind of pulling the best of what they saw this year. You know, it's 2020, and we still don't fucking have a great choice short anywhere to watch. Like. I wish there was an opportunity for us to, or for filmmakers to kind of take what's already out there and create sort of like a framework that allows them to share that. Because when you get stuff like little deaths, and I'm sorry to end this on a negative or begin this on a negative (laughs) note, but for me, as somebody who doesn't respond to psychosexual horror as well as I do other parts or other subgenres within that, um, and who certainly isn't as Donato knows really well, who doesn't like his horror mean it was a really tough watch for me and i understand that it was it was a cohesive collective vision of three filmmakers to create films that were of you know kind of the same mindset of the same mentality and how they dealt with issues of sexuality and violence like that was a really really tough watch for me um and i kind of found myself i was like i wish i could have just watched three of the the, you know the best horror shorts of 2011 as opposed to these three horror shorts because i'm i'm struggling a bit here
2: That's interesting. It's
0: interesting too. The uh, I
2: didn't realize you had, had had an aversion to cruelty in that way because I know like you're a fan of the Lodge,
0: right? Uh, but but all right, yes, but I don't think that the Lodge is particularly cruel, and we we can get into that or not get Wait, into that. Excuse me. <laughs> I don't think it's a particularly cruel film. I think it's a comedic film. I think it has a the a beating heart of a really black comedy that makes a lot of what happens in that movie sort of like fun it's hard for i can't articulate that super well but like the lodge to me is not a cruel film
1: i think you're the only one saying that anywhere online
0: (laughs) but i'm also the only i think i saw it later than everybody else who was like this movie is so mean and i watched it and i was like they're kind of just fucking around like this is like whatever whatever point being i don't want i don't want to get too much in the the lodge um that has more than five (laughs) 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 reviews so we won't talk about that um, but I kind of i w- I want to open it up. um, Donato. i I know that um you haven't really voiced your opinion on, on little vests yet. So usually you tend to gravitate. you have a you have a broader appetite when it comes to stuff than me. and you you know me pretty well at this point. Like I do tend to shy away from stuff that that is a little bit mean. Um, so let me ask you where you sat with little vests?
1: So I find myself in a very hilarious predicament because neither of us agree that often on films i I mean basically i put barone and monogle you two in the same camp of loving the kind of horror that doesn't always work for me so i laughed to myself so hard when i found out monogle did not care for little deaths and you Uh did because i'm like now i have to side myself with one of these people who i like i have to pick a side here between people i never agree with um i think i'm somewhere in the middle that's the issue I definitely understand why you didn't like it, Matt. The first uh, short, I was like, oh, this is not Monogle's Jam by any means. It is mean. Little Deaths, every single segment is bleak. It's mean. It's nasty. It is some of the most relentless psychosexual horror I have ever seen. Very abusive I, at times, too. I was I, throw- I was I'm just going to say, I don't know if it always sells it. That's where i get to i i don't know if it always drives the message home with enough impact and meaning to actually bring us to these grotesque imagery uh sorry to like to this kind of grotesque imagery and just right off the bat you know we have you know there's pretty much a rape in the first one and then some cannibalistic shit and in the second one we definitely have the um a lot of dong a lot a lot of a lot of milking and then in the third one, we definitely have some, you know, sodomy and things of that nature. So it goes hard. It, it It's not easy to watch. But when you watch like Simon Rumley's stuff and he did um, Red, White and Blue, he did a few films that have that kind of nastiness that and no matter what. And to see him still up that in something like Little Deaths, I'm kind of like, oh, geez. I didn't even know you could reach this level and I've seen the worst of your worst so far. So I don't, I don't know. There, there is, there is this level of being impressed by what's happening and by these filmmakers that are taking these gigantic risks. I just struggle to justify the risks, uh, segment by segment.
0: All right. I wanted to get us on record. Um, so that, so that Barone can tell us now why we're wrong. Um, so, so buddy jump in. Um, what what is it What is it about these these three films and the way that they kind of fit together to tell this theme, that um, that really resonates with you? Because this feels this feels a little to me of of an era too, right? Like this feels like a late two to that like first decade of the two thousands um, kind of horror film in a lot of ways, and it feel like you know even to like the aggressive blue filter that a lot of the the shorts are, th- are shot through, like it does. I don't want to use the phrase torture porn because it's, you know, that's not what it is, but it feels like it was, it was coming from an era where, um, horror was responding or reacting really violently to a few years of just sort of studio banality. And it does, if I were to chart a history of this, it does seem to be one of those features that seems to be in response to mainstream PG 13 horror of the, like the first few years of the 2000s.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh um, So how I, yeah, how I came into this movie was, so around that time when it came out, I was uh, working for Double XL which is a, was, I think it's still around online, but it's a rap music magazine. So that was my full-time job, but I was, obviously, I loved all this stuff. I loved horror. I, I wanted to start covering movies, so I would sort of, during my day job, just read all the film blogs at the time, which, you know, were like, ain't a cool news, which obviously isn't super cool anymore, but, um you know, like Cinematical was around that time and Slash Film was kind of bubbling a little bit. So I was just like an avid reader of that stuff. And so I would read all festival coverage. And I got to, I got introduced to Red, White, and Blue, which Matt uh, Donato referenced earlier was Simon Rumley's kind of breakthrough movie at the time, which came out in 2010. So it came out pretty, a little before this one, but it came out early enough to where I had time to see Red, White, and Blue. And that movie, I think, is amazing. Uh, talk about cruel. Like, uh, Monocle, you'll probably hate that movie because it's, it's like the... Uh, it's one of the cruelest movies. Uh, and and it has a lot of kind of hope and like romance in it, but it it just crushes you in the end. And it's, it's kind of Rumley's thing. That's what he does anyway. So that movie just really affected me in like a deep, deep way. So I became very fascinated by the Simon Rumley guy. And I went back and watched the living and the dead, which was the movie he did prior to red, white, and blue, which is also really, really good and really bleak and heavy. So anyway, so then when I heard about little deaths, um, because of him, he was my reason to want to see this. Um, and I just, like I was saying in the, in the beginning of this, like the cruelty is actually something that really I, I admire about it. Um, I, in, in, you know, Anya and I joke around about this a lot, but like, you know, I'm a pretty sort of mellow, nice guy and, you know, and everything, but the movies I like, like if the, if a movies, the bleaker it is sort of more crushing, it is the more I respond to it. I'm not sure where that comes from. It's probably some deeper sort of therapy session. That I can go into at some point to figure that out. But um. Yeah, I just I love movies that that fully go into what they're trying to do. So in the sense of like something like Aronofsky's Mother, I love because it, it takes this one sort of heavy handed thing and it just bum rushes into it. So kind of head on that I admire that. And so for this movie, when I watched it, um, I just admired how it, it just kept one upping itself in the kind of just how bleak and cruel it got. I think the first segment, the first segment, which we haven't really talked about what they're about. So I'll kind of go through what they're about quickly as I talk about them. But. The first segment, House and Home, is basically uh, this uh, wealthy couple who uh, pose as a kind of Christian sort of um, a Christian couple. And what they do is they bring homeless uh, girls into their house and uh, sort of, you know, do very bad, abusive, sexual things to them and then pay them. It's kind of a way to kind of get their rocks off. And it's just a really kind of a a fucked up situation to begin with. Um, And they end up picking the wrong girl this time that leads to sort of you know, some bad things happening and the first segment when I watched it, the first segment I appreciated, it felt very much like kind of the most sort of typical anthology segment where it's like bad people getting comeuppance, you know, it had the kind of EC comics sort of vibe to it where, you know, or amicus a lot of the times is always centered on a bad person, who just makes the wrong choice and their sort of bad sort of intentions come back to, to bite them in the ass. So that, so the first segment felt very familiar and I'm like, Oh, this is cool. Okay. This is interesting. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's definitely bleaker and sort of meaner than any anthology I'd seen. And at that point there really hadn't been any anthology. So it kind of came out of time when I was sort of starving for a new anthology because I loved them growing up. And then the second segment comes, basically a second segment is about uh, this doctor who's uh, has this sort of person slash creature type thing shackled up in a room where it through its, uh, I guess you could say it's, its semen, <laughs> it's uh, it's leading to a drug that um, sort of opens your third eye as one person puts it. And anybody that takes this drug sort of starts seeing what the previous, what the person who produced it um, experienced in their life. And it's just kind of this weird sort of like you mentioned Cronenberg earlier sort of thing that it, it, it's the second segment to me is the weakest one only in the sense that like the kind of I wouldn't say mythology, but the sort of science behind it, or the kind of like reasoning behind it is a little bit murky um, and it doesn't really all fully connect. But again, the second segment sort of goes for it in a way that showed me something I'd never seen before, which is the mutant tool was the name of it. And the literal mutant tool is just the whole idea of that it was just so kind of bonkers and out there that I just admired how in, just how wild it is. And you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't fully work the second segment, but I just appreciate things that take a risk and do something I've never seen before. And And also before we even get
1: to, I was going to say before we even get to the third segment, there's also like, it's a Nazi program, right? Like, did did I catch that? Yeah, it's like (laughs) all this stuff of the mutant tool that's crazy and enough. And then to top that with, oh, yeah, by the way, it's Nazi science. And it's just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel
0: like there's a period there where where people were like, hey, you know what would make this horror movie good? (laughs) Like, you know, lost Nazi science art. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like oh that was yeah. that was a choice horror filmmakers I'm I'm glad we worked that one out of our system <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: totally yeah yeah it's all underlined by some sort of Nazi kind of uh, science thing that it again doesn't fully make total sense but it just kind of adds to the sort of depravity kind of going on throughout the whole thing um, but then the third segment is where I realize I love the movie as a whole and I it's it's Simon Rumley who we talked about. Um, who made Red, White, and Blue. Uh, He's been sort of hit or miss lately. His most recent thing is like a gangster crime movie called Once Upon a Time in London. That's a little bit iffy, but uh, he made a film called Fashionista a couple years ago that we showed at Brooklyn that played at Fantastic Fest that was him kind of getting back to his Red, White, and Blue vibes. He's just a very cynical, sort of uh, kind of mean-spirited filmmaker. Um, And uh, Bitch, the third segment, is about this young couple who, the guy in the, it's a guy and a girl. The guy is sort of, Horribly treated by his girlfriend, uh, and he, at times, is made to dress up as a dog to sort of get to help her get off. And you sort of learn through their interactions that she has this like deep-seated, deathly afraid fear of dogs. And they don't fully explain where that comes from, but you sort of get the sense maybe some sort of traumatic experience when she was a kid or something. Um, but you know, it's not really spelled out. But so there's this thing with dogs where she has a fear of them, and she sort of works out her her um issues with dogs by having this kind of weak weaker kind of willed uh, pushover boyfriend dress up as a dog in the bedroom and she just mistreats him and he eventually gets fed up with being treated poorly and flips her fear of dogs into kind of the meanest one of the, the most mean spirited um come up in things i've ever seen in the film um played with this like really weird like um sort of uh like folk music you know like some kind of like rock, british rock folk music that's playing over it that it just sort of has this kind of strange juxtaposition that just kind of mesmerized me the first time i watched the whole sort of payoff of the third segment and yeah so i it it, I, it really comes down to the fact that the movie just it just it it, it embraces its cruelty and, it, and it's kind of sexual perversion in ways that i hadn't seen done before in this way in an anthology format and even when it doesn't fully work like mutant tool it's just it's showing me something i've never seen before and it's really going for it and something about me as a as a fan of film in general but specifically horror i love things that take sort of big swings and if they don't work i can you know if it's like a big swing and it's just a complete miss it's one thing but something like this to me works enough to where sort of ambition of it um is is pretty admirable and and i love the fact that like it just it, there's no audience for it's this is a typical festival movie in the sense that like this is not gonna get any big release. It's really gonna be the kind of movie you go to a festival and you hear about, you tell your friends about and you rent it, and it just has that kind of seediness to it that maybe also factored into why it's been so kind of under under discussed. Um, because like you like the reviews that exist for it on Rotten Tomatoes, the very few they are are all positive. The people I've I've mentioned it to that have watched it have come back to me saying like they may not love it, but they kind of respect what it's doing and the sort of kind of uh, just the kind of just the dirtiness of it. Um yeah, I just I, I, I think it's a it's a really mean spirited movie that has a, a really just a segment that kind of leaves left my jaw dropped of how fucked up it is and how dark it is and how it just yeah, man. I don't know. It, I've never seen an anthology like it out there. Um, I think the fact that it doesn't have a wraparound is a benefit because wraparounds are kind of a topic. I guess we can get into a little bit, but I, I they generally don't work for me. Most of it, most, you know, overall, there's a couple here and there that are strong, but they they sort of always do the same thing. And I like how um, this movie sort of is just owning the fact that it's going to give you three really fucked up depraved stories, and it doesn't need to kind of like package them in any way. It's like the cruelty is the message. Here it is. Sort of deal with it. You know.
1: <laughs> I think touching on wraparounds, um, I I agree and disagree because I agree with the fact that it, I don't think it's always needed. I've seen plenty of anthologies that just go one by one, and all they kind of do is a quick title card. And that's all it's needed. But I have seen wraparounds that are intriguing, and, and once again, I'll bring up uh, a Christmas horror story because you get a drunken William Shatner who's a radio DJ leading us into these tales of holiday horror and the way that he waxes poetic about them, but still is like a kind of like douchey radio shock jock DJ. It adds something to the film. It makes it seem like everything is tied together. And when you can tie it together in that way, to me, at least it elevates the anthology a little more. Uh, It gives it that more feature length feel, but again, totally agree the fact that like, I don't think you need one. I think if you do one, You go all out and make it part of the overlying and, you know, larger picture. But I do agree it works for little deaths because just as you said, this is going to be a divisive as hell movie. And people don't know about it because how do you even recommend a movie like this to people? But the people that are going to like it are going to like it. And it's just in your face saying, hey, here's three super fucked up segments. And, you know, there's nothing else to say here. We, We have nothing else to explain ourselves.
0: I would actually go in the other direction um, and disagree with both, or I don't know, maybe just you, Donato. But I, I would have liked to see, have seen some kind of a framing device for this. And I think part of it, you know, Barone at the beginning, you said that this is problem problematic. And I think that if you are watching this, if if you, especially if you're somebody who um, tries to evaluate films through more or less a contemporary lens, right, like through the lens of watching it today in 2020, you're you'll have some some trouble with this. And I think part of that is because the primary characters in this are people that we're used to seeing sort of punched down at a popular culture. You know, we have the homeless, we have a a sex worker slash an addict. And then for the end thing, we have, we'll say subdom relationship, like non-conventional sexual partnerships that have a lot to do with role playing. These are all easily lampoon kind of things. And the movie is mean. And I don't think that that necessarily, those shorts are necessarily there to call out those people specifically but the blending of that, the kind of like the viciousness of some of the imagery and the way that the characters are used to kind of get to to these, like to what you said, Barone, kind of like big swing endings, I think that that it it is easy to conflate sort of like judgment or condemnation on these characters and the roles that they play in their worlds. And I think a, a some sort of a framing device for those might have helped to kind of separate that a little bit because... You have to grapple with this movie a little bit, I think, in order to parse out the different ideas that it's going for. And I think that that, that work, you know, obviously the audience needs to be able to be willing to do the work. But I think, I think it is tougher with this than it would be if it was maybe given a little bit more of, um, I don't know, kind of like a, a higher level input of the filmmaker, some sort of authorial voice speaking out and saying, you know, this is what we're, we're trying to go with here it certainly would have made it, maybe made it a bit more accessible. Not that it ever would have been super accessible.
2: Yeah, I could see that. Um, I think, I think what I, part of what I respond to it is the lack of accessibility. I think in a way, you know, like for me, this is the mm-hmm. kind of movie that like I embrace the fact that it it's very for a very limited audience. I think this isn't, this, this movie, when you kind of come up with this concept, I think you're sort of going into it, knowing that it's not going to be accessible right like i think that's sort of what i like about it is the kind of uh what's the word the way this describe it i don't want to say punk rock but there's a sort of there's a kind of like you know that's sort of like a corny way to put it but i don't think you you might understand what i'm trying to get at there's a kind of like sort of middle finger attitude about it that um which sort of goes to your earlier question about the kind of era of the time it was released that um it's funny actually last night i rewatched the first two Hostel movies because they were airing on cable uh and part of this quarantine that we're in i was like oh, let me watch movies and they're both on and i actually like them more than i remember liking them uh last night and it just yeah it made me go back to sort of especially the first Hostel, where it's just like that last half hour of it is just you get the sense that this guy eli roth is really just trying to one-up himself in every scene and he's really like man f- you know fuck it i'm just gonna give you this the, the craziest movie i can give you and it was definitely a response to that era of like you know it was a lot of just kind of the sort of j-horror sort of uh, american you know hollywood sort of j-horror remake thing was going on there was a kind of movies like darkness falls and these very sort of like weird anonymous things <laughs> that nobody remembers you know it was just, I, hollywood Darkness Falls has
0: actually been mentioned like multiple times on our podcast so i love it
2: has it really <laughs> the, jenny mentioned uh, it uh, talking
1: I, about j-horror exactly <laughs>
2: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there was just that era where it felt like Hollywood and sort of even in indie horror was kind of trying to figure out what it what it was doing at the time, and everything felt kind of bleak. And and then it was sort of recovering from that post Scream era, where Scream kind of like it you know exposed the genres sort of quirks and kind of meta stuff so much that it was hard to rebound and make something scary after that. You know, so the only way these filmmakers really figure out how to do it was like. We're just gonna punish you. You know, we're gonna pummel you with this like the, the the most kind of extreme heavy shit and try and get back to this sort of seventies era when things are really dangerous, you know, like the sort of Last House and Hills Have Eyes era and and all that kind of stuff that was really kind of pushing buttons and, and provoking things and the Eli Ross and the Rob Zombies, all these guys, you know, Alex Aja with high tension, the sort of French extremity. That whole era was really going for it. And and this film, Little Death sort of comes at kind of not the tail end of that, but it, it sort of comes at the time where that was becoming a little bit even um, yeah. from what I remember that era, like the, it became almost there was a sort of a pushback started coming against it. You know, people were like kind of like rebelling against this. It was almost like, OK, now people are only making extreme things just to make extreme just to kind of, you know, sort of push buttons. And this sort of came at the end of that. And, and I remember watching this at the time and being like, wow, this completely one-upped everything I'd seen before, you know, like the, the bitch segment, It's hard to sort of explain how like visceral my reaction was to just how cruel that whole thing was, you know? And it just, it, 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 so it kind of came towards the end of that era where people were really just saying, you know what, we're going to, horror is meant to kind of really sort of un un, make you feel uneasy and make you feel sort of, you know, a certain way. And um, we're going to kind of push that to as far as it can get. And I think this film, so this film these filmmakers never meant to make this accessible like you know and i think that's what i love about it is that they fully embraced that and you know hell or high water they were going to make a movie that was going to reach a certain specific type of viewer i guess that's me <laughs> you know but uh i yeah and and i and i just and and it's interesting too because i i wonder why it kind of never really picks up any steam like it's sort of especially when the vhs movies and stuff came out it it it, it the, the the reviews that do exist are positive it the people i've talked to about it all seem to kind of re- realize that it may not be a great movie but it's it's doing something very transgressive and unique and kind of um assaultive in a way that few movies really try to do um so i've always kind of been fascinated by it, why it's sort of been swept under the rug so much and i don't know if it's because of the sexual nature of it makes people uncomfortable maybe maybe i'm conflating its quality too much and maybe it's not as good as i seem to think it is and you know i'm, I'm still kind of trying to reckon with the fact that like this movie doesn't Exist on anybody's radars, um, in a way that I feel like it deserves to. You know, uh,
1: well, I mean, like speaking to what you were saying about uh, the era, going down the list, you know, this was what 2011 it came out. So yeah. 2010, you have a Serbian film. You have Human Centipede in 20 uh 2009, and then Human Centipede Two in 2011. You have this I Spit on Your Grave remake in 2010. So I, I do think. maybe the market was almost oversaturated with this shock you kill you kind of horror that is just meant to feel you, you know, it's just fills you with nothing but ickiness, you know, and I don't know, maybe audiences, even like horror audiences at this point were maybe a little sick of it in a way Um, that would be my only kind of inkling on, because even looking at the human centipede um, franchise, 2009 is the first one. 2011 is the second one. Then the third one doesn't come out until 2015. And again, I don't think that third one comes out unless Tom Six was like really pushing it and really getting that kind of hype going. Uh, Because I think that movement did die out. You were right that there was pushback after those, those kind of movies. And I think a lot of horror fans kind of went in a different direction right after that. So I wouldn't be surprised if Little Deaths got caught in some of that and everyone kind of said just oh it's another film that's getting lumped in you know with something like a serbian film because i definitely equate some of the imagery in little deaths and especially that bitch segment and especially that last shot that just lingers it it fucks you up it's meant to fuck you up and it does and i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing and again that quality is shared with a movie like a serbian film where i watch it and i go I have felt things I didn't know cinema can make me feel, and I don't know whether to respect the fuck out of it or be horrified at myself right now.
0: Well, that was something yeah. that I wrote about um, a while ago. Is is you know it, it's always interesting to look at the, the the eras of horror and how they change. And for a long time, um, I think until it actually, the highest grossing um, highest grossing Stephen King movie was actually fourteen oh eight. That was the John Kuzak one about the guy who checks into the. Um, haunted house in the hotel room and it's rated PG-13 and it's not particularly like it's got a lot of really cool visual concepts in it but it's not it's a marked departure in 2007 from a lot of the horror films that you that we had seen and when I wrote a piece about it for film school rejects a few years back I was kind of curious I was trying to figure out why and when you dove into the reviews of the film there was this through line uh, from contemporary critics that was very much like thank god we have a movie that isn't another saw and whether they were like i think even peter travers in his rolling stone reviews like literally was like it's not saw go see it you know and i think that the, i think it's i think it is a matter of a lot of times whether a movie is good or bad is really kind of subjected to what other films like it are being released and sometimes it takes a while for us to come back and pick up movies that were out of step with their era. and sometimes stuff that feels very in step with its era Um, You know, if you don't have the benefit of nostalgia, if it's not something that you look back on because you saw it when in a period of your life, it's harder for you to go back and make an argument for it because it feels out of sync with the current era. So all of which is, you know, we always um, end our segments where we talk about the movie um, with sort of trying to break down why maybe it missed with audiences of its time. And Barone, I think you brought us to that point perfectly, because I think to me, this feels like something that was overlooked because it, it was in sync with a lot of movies that came out but sort of at the tail end of that movement but because nobody saw it there isn't the same sort of nostalgia stuff right like somebody will go see saw and be like oh man i watched this when i was a you know a sophomore in high school and this movie fucked me up and i love it but if nobody saw little deaths then there isn't the same kind of like nostalgia for it as a really transgressive exploitative film they might have watched when they were in late high school or early college
2: yeah no, definitely and and as i think about that era more too if you sort of look back on it like right at the tail like this came you know you mentioned the uh, human centipede 2 in 2011 or whatever year, like that the this and that felt like the sort of last breaths of that extreme era then what ha- what you get after that is insidious coming out right You know, you get the sort of blumhouse kind of resurgence and the paranormal activity you get this kind of sort of um in a way it's 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 a kind of throwback to the sort of haunted house movies or the kind of more things that are more about the psychological kind of bumps in the night and, and things that don't necessarily have to like make you feel disgusting, you know? Um, I think that, yeah, this definitely came out at a time where people were just kind of tired of feeling bad, maybe in a way, you know, like they were sort of, Mm. they got pummeled so much with that kind of, you know, the, I hate the word torture porn too, but that sort of era that everybody looks at of that, you know, even the French extremity movies kind of started tailing off a little bit at that time. And it just felt like people were ready to, they still wanted to be scared by movies, but they didn't want to f- like feel bad about life in a way, you know, like where this movie definitely the sort of culmination of all three segments obviously ends with the, with the bitch segment, which ends on such a mean sort of just dark bleak note that you don't feel good when this movie's ending. Right. And that, and there's a certain kind of, um, uh, it takes a certain kind of, you have to be in the right headspace for that po- possibly, or, or, I don't know what it is, but I think that Insidious and and that whole sort of then, which leads to The Conjuring, which leads to all that kind of era of all the sort of, you know, stuff that Blumhouse was doing, I think was kind of, maybe not so much a direct response by somebody like James Bond, but I think the audience dictated the fact that they were tired of feeling just bad about life and about, you know, about themselves and humanity. So they wanted to kind of just go to a theater and have a funhouse experience, you know? So this movie sort of is a combination of, getting a small release in the first place, you know, it didn't really get any, any kind of release that would have given it a chance to really become something, but it definitely, um, I think people just were just tired of feeling the way this movie makes you feel. So that's why I'd be interesting to see if it ever can have some, any kind of like revival in a way, you know, um, because even what sort of current horror is now, it's not really what this movie is, you know? So this, this movie almost feels like it kind of, it'll exist in a way that like, it's nowhere near as fucked up as necromantic or something, but it feels like a kind of movie that, will exist in that place where you kind of challenge people to watch it or you'd be like, Oh, have you ever seen this movie? little Deaths?" And it'll be this kind of curiosity that's on shutter now. So people will go on shutter or they'll, they'll borrow somebody's DVD of it and they'll be like, Oh man, it's crazy. But I, I feel like it almost it, at this point, it's destined to be that sort of, I dare you to watch movie or, right? you know, have you seen this sort of thing, like a Serbian film, like you mentioned where you sort of almost kind of like test people's endurance or, you know, or what they, um, with how much they can handle in a way. And I think this movie sort of exists in that space, which is cool, you know, you know, in a way kind of probably what it's always destined to be anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, even thinking about who I'm like friends with in the horror circles now and all the journalists up and coming and things, uh, people of that nature. I know so many critics who would give this one star and just walk away so mad. And I think that's where the, you know, talking about, why did this film get forgotten? Why didn't it get the distribution and why didn't it get the like cult acclaim maybe for a movie this messed up in the head. And it's because for a large part of what we've talked about. And I also think it's just really hard to recommend. It's really hard to show this movie to somebody and feel okay about it. It's not a safe pick I would say. And that's where the issue comes in. I think, um, It was right in that prime era for VOD, right in that prime era for film festivals and things of that nature. And even then, it's a film that all of us are talking about being like, yeah, we're we're rattled by what we have seen. We are not happy at times with what we have seen. And I don't mean that on a quality level. I mean it on a thematic level, too. And it's just not a movie you can really throw around with ease. Whenever someone's like, "Huh, what should I watch tonight? What, what should my Friday night, you know, horror movie be?" Like, you're not going to queue up Little Deaths. You you you're completely right around. You have to be in the right headspace for it, and that really it really lessens the uh, reach. I would say for a film of this nature.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I, and I think something I, I uh, when I mentioned problematic earlier, another kind of element I was looking at too, is, as I rewatched this recently to, you know, for, for us to talk about it, that I, I guess I never fully clicked into until now. And I, and I think it's a, it's a byproduct of the sort of climate we're in now and everybody's more hyper aware of these things that to me, it's a problematic movie in the sense of how it treats women and how it sort of looks at women. Cause like, yep. y- if you think about it, every segment is just horrible towards the, the women. I mean, you know, like the, the only sort of woman character who gets any kind of like, I don't know, victory or whatever is the one, is the, the, you know, the girl in the, without spoiling anything, is, you know, is the girl in the first segment. And that's not even really like a happy ending, you know, it's, it's so, and then, you know, then the way that the girl is treated in the third segment, the, the, the way the second segment with the girl was the, the prostitute with the drug addiction, it's, it's clearly a movie made by men that aren't, you know, that have a very specific point of view that, um, it, it's, and I, that really kind of struck me as I was watching it this time. And I guess because everybody's much more, tuned into that now because of where we are and it's a great thing that we are like it, it made me think that like this sort of how you know like uh like at one point abc's a death the people that made that they were there if those movies would have been a success they were going to make different genre versions they were going to have a science fiction one they were going to they're sort of were like having these big ambitions to kind of do different genres and the movies those movies didn't make any money so it never happened but like i like the idea of taking a framework of an anthology and like Giving other so the uh, what I'm trying to say is I think Little Deaths made by all women filmmakers would be a completely different movie and would be a really oh, yeah. interesting movie that I would love that I'd love to see because of the whole how sexuality would be handled would be different you know how you're curious to see what sort of come up as characters get because this movie is it's also hard to recommend aside from just the shock value of it in the sense of like it's it's definitely problematic on a kind of on how yeah. the women characters are portrayed you know and it's sort of hard to avoid that once you approach it from that kind of sort of 2020 sort of um uh awareness that we all should have had i should have had that awareness in 2010 when i saw this but i guess for whatever reason at that time i was looking at it just as a pure kind of shock value experience and i was like rattled by it in a good way but as time has gone on and we're much more sort of clicked into that this movie definitely falls into the problematic side of that, I think.
1: And I also think, too, you know, this is a much larger conversation, but film writing as a whole and film criticism itself has shifted uh, in the way that we write about movies, I would say. Um, People writing about a movie like Little Deaths in 2011 are going to write about it a lot differently in today's climate just because of what we now know and things that we've now experienced. And I think we we were able a little more in older times, I guess I would say, to value a movie for what it is and stay in that world, where now I almost think there's just a push and a shove to really be aware of the cultural implications more so than uh, the film itself and just on a quality standpoint, I would say. So I I think you're 100% right. And I don't think it's that we didn't notice. I just think it's that the industry itself has shifted in a way that makes us clue into it more and not that it's a bad thing either. I'm not, I'm not in no way saying that's a bad thing. I just think it's one of those, one of those, uh, changing of the times, uh, professional things.
0: Well, I think we have dissected little deaths, um, about it as, (laughs) as thoroughly as we could hope to. So before we, uh, before we sign off here, any lingering thoughts, any last things that, um, we didn't work up in natural conversation, Donato or Barone that you wanted to throw out there.
1: I'm going to say a good little gore effect with the uh, tearing of the nipple. <laughs> That's it. That's uh, all I'm going to
2: say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I would say that uh, one thing too is that if, if you do watch this film and you respond to it like I have, and and you're very excited about it or, more you know, if if you if you take something from it and you want to see more things like it, there's another anthology that came out in 2015 called German Angst. I don't know if either of you've ever seen that. Um, that premiered at Fantastic, played Fantastic Fest 2015. I don't know if it premiered there, but uh, it's three segments from German filmmakers. One of them is the filmmaker who made Necromantic, and it's it's not it's not angled specifically about sexuality, but it's it has the same level of just kind of shock, kind of cruelty to it that um, makes it sort of unique and special in that kind of way. So if if you listen to this and see little deaths and you're like, wow, I want to see something else that sort of pushes buttons in that kind of way in an anthology format. German angst is definitely recommended. And I also highly recommend red, white, and blue, which I've said before, I think it's one that speaking of modern sort of genre films that, uh, deserve to be sort of talked about more. I think it's one, um, that, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's up there with hereditary in these movies cause it's not, but I think it, it, it's in terms of like provoking a certain response, and just the kind of sheer kind of recklessness and um, going for just the, just, a, just a, it's, it's, it's a hard movie to talk about, but, but it's Simon Rumley. I think it's the best movie he's made. It has a lot of what bitch has in terms of that kind of cruelty, but with like sort of character driven dynamics and it's, it's something special. Uh, I highly recommend red, white and blue. Um, if you get a chance to see it, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, but uh, you may have to go old school and actually find a DVD copy of it somewhere. But um it's great and yeah i think Simon rummy is a really interesting filmmaker and yeah man if you like little deaths tell me about it because uh i actually i'm not gonna lie i came into this podcast thinking that you guys are gonna that especially monocle because i feel like Mon- i feel like you and i have very similar sort of um sensibilities and tastes so i was i was surprised in a good way though i mean i think this kind of movie sort of definitely deserves to have that divisiveness you know but i actually came into this thinking you were going to respond to it more than you did so it's interesting that that you didn't so i i I like but i like that i like that it kind of um is so all across the board you know
1: yeah let let me just restress the fact that this movie will be divisive divisive is the word here (laughs) there's there's gonna be no middle ground on a film this exploitative of certain things so definitely go in with that little bit of a disclaimer and uh if you would like to watch red white and blue go watch it on shutter actually it's streaming on shutter as well yep okay. it is and i might even say
0: uh go stream that over little deaths <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah it's definitely better than little deaths i'll admit that it's, it's 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 pretty great i think
0: all right barone um if people would like to follow you on social media get more film recommendations see the kind of stuff you're working on with the the various festivals and your return to writing this year hopefully um what's the best place Where 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 should they go where should they follow you
2: yeah, Twitter uh, is the main thing, uh, M-Barone, M-B-A-R-O-N-E on Twitter. Uh, I'm definitely going to start being more active on there. Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram too, but those are much more sort of like less frequently used and more sort of just like my Instagram is a lot of pictures of my dog, you know, and <laughs> and, uh, and stuff like that. Whereas Twitter is much more where I deal with film and talk about film and recommend stuff. So I say Twitter, M-Barone.
0: Nice donato remind the folks you
1: can find me at donato bomb on twitter instagram and letterboxd and you can find my writing on places such as bloody disgusting slash film fangoria magazine and other places but uh as always just follow the socials and i'll let you know where i'm writing
0: yeah and as for myself the third matt you can find me on twitter it's Labsplice, splice l-a-b-s-p-l-i-c-e and i pop up you know from time to time austin chronicle slash film film school rejects bunch of different places it's all good um barone i want to say thank you for being our guest i'm sorry we do have very similar taste in horror films and i'm sorry i could not follow you on the journey that you put forth for us i feel like i've let you down personally this time
2: it's all good though i mean i i am as big on black coat's daughter as you are in session nine and we have our <laughs> mov- we have our movies that we bond over so we can have one that's a little bit you know less uh, agreed upon it's fun.
1: I can't believe we got through an entire podcast episode without (laughs) referencing your love of Blackcoat's daughter equally and my hatred of it.
0: (laughs) I love that movie. It's like one of my favorites of the last few years. Well, you know what? Then, If that's the case, then we should balance the scales by having Matt Donato sign us off in our usual manner.
1: Um, I I'm I'm gonna do it after this, but let me just say, uh, I recommended Demon Wind to a lot of people, and they actually did take to it this weekend. So my reach is still going; it is growing, and I love it. So let me. You uh,
0: literally, they literally don't have anything else to do. You have the. I know. Of I have the them
1: right where I want them. Demon Wind.